0: Discerninghearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co authored with Cardinal Donald World, and The Roots of the Faith. The Church Fathers to You, on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. Roots of the Faith, from The Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike.
1: Thanks for having me back, Chris. I am always surprised.
0: <laughs> well, I'm always surprised when I go to buy a Bible. I want one more to be able to do a study in, mm-hmm. and I find that there are so many different Bibles out there, I can't even imagine which which ones did the Church Fathers intend for me to have.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the Fathers would look at us and they would, they would say that we live in luxury Because if you think about it, they're living in a time before technology, before the printing press. Mm -hmm. So most of the church fathers probably never owned a Bible. They never owned a book that contained all of the holy books of -hmm. the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there would be very few of those in existence anyway. Because where would you get them? So what we had during those early centuries of the church, especially during the times of persecution, you, you had whatever books you could afford to have copied out. Think about what it was like, Chris. You know, you're living in a culture where literacy is not very common. Mm-hmm. Okay, not, very few people have the opportunity to go to school and learn how to read. And even those who do can't afford to buy a lot of books because any book you buy has been copied out laboriously by hand by someone who is very educated, so it would be very expensive. Right. So you you have this situation where hardly anyone could read, and very few people could actually own books, never mind something like the Bible, which is a whole library full of books. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about everything from Genesis to Revelation, you have all of those books. Who could afford all that? Very few people, very few churches even could afford to have all those, Um, especially, as I said, during the times of persecution. So the fathers would look at us today and say, what are you complaining about? Sure. You can own a Bible that has small enough print so that you can carry it in your jacket pocket or you can carry it in your purse. Or you could own a big 25-pound study Bible in hardcover that has these ample footnotes, and you can get into all of these problems of language and historical setting and everything in the footnotes of your Bible. It's amazing what we have at our disposal today that the fathers did not have, and really could never dream of having.
0: Mm-hmm. Why is it we get so racked in wanting this translation and that translation? Why do we have that battle within this wonderful gift that we've been presented with.
1: Well, part of the problem is the way the way our views of the Bible have evolved. See, in the ancient church, when very few people could actually read the Bible and very few people could own the Bible, the Bible was still supremely important, but it was received in the context of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. You went to Mass, maybe you went every day, maybe you went only on Sundays— But you went to Mass, and there you heard the scriptures proclaimed, and you heard them explained by the the priest who was celebrating Mass. Mm -hmm. We have some great examples from the early church, like St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, who would go to funerals. Because if she went to funerals, she could hear the gospel proclaimed again in a day. So she would go to Mass daily but she would also go to funerals whenever they were celebrated so that she could hear the gospel a second time that day. Mm. Uh, Because that that was the only way to kind of soak in the scriptures was to to go to the mass and receive them that way. And there's a lot of evidence that most of the New Testament was composed in order to be proclaimed in the Eucharistic assembly. Many of St. Paul's letters seem to uh, assume that they'll be They'll, they'll be read out loud um, mm-hmm. in the assembly, the Eucharistic assembly. They'll be read to the whole church in the context of the sacrament. The book of Revelation certainly seems to assume that it will be proclaimed in the assembly that it will be very liturgical, very ritual, and very Eucharistic. The chalice is being poured out and and so on, and uh, the altar being present. So the New Testament itself seems to, to witness to the Mass as its proper context. So this is something we find throughout the time of the Fathers, that the Mass was the place where people encountered the Word of God. It was the place where people encountered the Scriptures. It was their experience of the Bible, and it was rich. You know, we find Christian art from those early centuries, and it's always depicting biblical scenes. Presumably, the people who saw the art would recognize what they saw before them and understand its narrative content and its symbolic content as well.
0: Controversy and the scriptures have been present long before the canon was brought forward.
1: Absolutely, because even in those early generations, you had people trying to put forth their own teachings and claim that they're the the teachings of Christ. They tried to alter the Christian faith by altering the scriptures sometimes. And so you had these strange figures coming up and writing their own gospels Mm -hmm. that were different from those that were accepted and proclaimed in the church. Um, And this started to happen very early on. We have this figure of Marcion who was writing in the 100s. And he was a fabulously wealthy man, a shipbuilder. He had a vast fortune. And at some point, he decided that he wanted to reshape the church to his own ideas. Well, his ideas were really anti-Jewish. He hated the Old Testament. And he had this idea that Jesus Christ came not to just proclaim a new covenant, Mm -hmm. but a new God. Uh Uh-oh. That the God of the Old Testament, the God who created the heavens and the earth, was a bad guy, Uh and that this new God was out to save us from the God of the Old Testament. So Marcion has a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and he's able to buy an awful lot, and he's able to set up his own churches and call them Christian and to imitate our sacraments and mimic them. And so it presented a real danger, and he drew a lot of people away from the faith. So we have the church fathers becoming very much concerned about this. It's already just in the shadow of the lives of the apostles because one of the the people who first confronted Marcion with his error was Polycarp of Smyrna, Mm. who was a very old man visiting Rome so that he could celebrate Mass with the Pope and he could try to settle some problems in the church. So Polycarp made that long journey from what is now Turkey to Rome in Italy, and there he meets Marcion and he confronts him with his sin. Uh, and he calls him the firstborn of Satan because he's dared to contradict what is so plain in the scriptures and to to reshape the scriptures in his own image, really. Well, who was Polycarp of Smyrna, and where did he get off saying these things? Polycarp of Smyrna was a disciple of the Apostle John from the time he was a child, brought up in the church of St. John himself. And St. John laid his head on the bosom of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. He was the beloved disciple, and he left us so much of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. This is quite a pedigree we're talking about here. So we see there's this conflict in the early church between the apostolic teaching, the apostolic witness, the apostolic writings, and all of these pretenders that are out there. And the Apostolic Church, the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, was very careful to preserve the the canonical scriptures in the Eucharistic Assembly and allow only those writings to be read in the Assembly. There were other good books, there were other good Christian books, but only these apostolic writings were permitted to be proclaimed in the Eucharistic Assembly, to be proclaimed at Mass.
0: It's amazing today we have those who are receiving doctorates studying the discarded writings that Polycarp would have railed against.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. Um, you know, but that's what happens when you get away from the idea that there, there is a Christianity, that there is a church. You, know, you have this idea that there were many Christianities, and this is something that's very common among scholars today. They dismiss the idea of a unified early church, even though that seems to be what so many of these documents witness to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's funny because the, so many of the people who were heretics in the early church saw themselves as outside of Catholic Christianity. And whenever they wanted to set up their own churches, they did their best to mimic what the real church did. Well, what did they do? First thing they always did was to mimic the Eucharist. They had to put that right or something that looked like it at the center of their practice. Mm. Another thing they often did was to mimic the papacy. They moved to Rome. They moved to the big city so that they could they could disseminate their bad doctrine from the place that was really the nerve center of the good doctrine. So they had to mimic the. The truth whenever they could give this veneer of truth that people would recognize from the apostolic faith. But even then, you know, it it didn't last long. And most of these heresies did not outlive their founders.
0: Sounds like today. <laughs> yes, where, we, where <laughs> we... We keep going back to that, don't we? What? Yes,
1: we do. We do. Um, uh, and and, and I, think, I think that the situation today is what enables people to believe that there were many Christianities in the ancient world. Because there are so many denominations today. And anytime you want to have a different style of piety, you start a different church. And that's mm-hmm. crazy. What we have in the ancient church is many different styles of piety, many different cultural expressions of piety, mm-hmm. but all living together in one church. Mm-hmm. There is a Syriac church that uses the Syriac language, and there is a, a, you know, an Alexandrian church in Egypt that uses the Greek language. There are other churches in Egypt that use the Coptic language, But it's all one church. It's all one church.
0: We'll return to Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging, multimedia, specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. We now return to The Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina compiling of the canon of scriptures finally bringing that all together was found necessary by the church fathers to be able to continue to be a strong root for this faith.
1: Right because problems arose. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a situation that we know about from um from the early uh church histories and because we have the correspondence that went back and forth. But there was a church, I believe it was in Syria, that was proclaiming the apocryphal gospel of Peter in its assemblies. And so the bishop had to kind of crack down on them and tell them, no, you know what, that's not one of the, one of the four we accept. <laughs> and so they, they had to be made to stop. And then we have St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who's a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John. Mm-hmm. And Saint Irenaeus of Lyon is already saying there that there are the four Gospels, and this is established from time immemorial, that it's as natural and as the fact that there are four winds, he says.
0: Now this is around 180. Yes. This is a good maybe 150, almost 200 years before the Great gathering that would put the canon together and it can be documented.
1: It can be documented because already at the time of Irenaeus we have we have him witnessing to the four gospels and he's talking about this as bedrock like nobody serious has ever believed anything different. He's also witnessing to many of the writings of the apostle Paul. Around the same time that Irenaeus is doing this we have a document in Italy that we know today as the Moratorian canon and it's just plain and simple, a list that pretty much matches up to what we find in our New Testament today. If we go just a little bit further to the time of St. Athanasius in the mid-4th century, we find these are the accepted scriptures, he says this is the list, and he lays it out, and it is exactly the, the canon of scripture in the New Testament as we know it today. Now those things were confirmed in councils of the church, especially Mm -hmm. in African synods. There was one in Hippo in 393. St. Augustine was instrumental in that. And then in Carthage in 397 and again in 419. And again, these were largely the work of St. Augustine, but it was all the bishops of the area gathered together. And those pretty much confirmed the list that a Roman synod had put out in 382 and that Roman synod had been attended by Pope St. Damasus and the great scripture scholar of, of early Christianity, St. Jerome. So we have all of this, these um, witnesses to the Canon lining up pretty early on. When we look at those
0: who compiled this, we're talking the most educated, most faithful, most spiritual men that the church had in its presence during a very volatile time.
1: And in a time when some people were, were questioning whether certain books belonged in the Bible. Mm-hmm. People in the early church were questioning whether the book of Revelation was, was should be there, mm-hmm. whether the epistle to the Hebrews should be there, whether the, the epistle of St. Jude should be there. Um, first and second Peter, people raised questions about these. It was the duty of these bishops, Saint Augustine, Saint Jerome, Saint Damasus, and so many others, to gather together and give the assurance of their authority, of the authority conferred on them by Jesus Christ, to 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 say in the name of Christ, in the name of the church, that these books are reliable, that they're apostolic, that they that they're inspired by God, and that they're without error. And they did so. So
0: How can we 1,200 years or so later say they were mistaken and we're right now? And what I'm leading to is the the efforts that would occur under the Protestant Reformation. Some call it the Protestant Revolution Revolution. or revolt. How is it that they knew better 1,200 years removed
1: from the scene? Well, anytime you find people questioning whether certain books belong in the canon or not, they're usually working backward from their theological conclusions, mm-hmm. and they're trying to get rid of the things that are inconvenient. You want to get rid of the book of Revelation because it is such a powerful witness to the Eucharist for one thing you mm-hmm. know uh, you want to get rid of the epistle to the Hebrews for the same reason or you want to get rid of the uh, epistles of uh, St. Peter because they they seem to give a special authority to St. Peter over the universal church right so you start to question these things then you keep questioning because there are so many problematic parts of the New Testament if you want to uh, if you want to reject the
0: and we're talking primarily about the New Testament, but it also holds true to the Church Father's selection of the Old Testament mm-hmm. books that would be brought forward and placed within that full body of the canon of Scripture.
1: That's right. That's right. And we, we find that from, from the Reformation onward, you have, you have people who don't accept what are often called the deuterocanonical books, the books like um, the books of Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, These Old Testament books that are are so integral to the church's life, its theology and um, its doctrine, and its liturgy especially, that they don't want to have these things because they're problematic. The book of Maccabees witnesses to purgatory, for example, and it becomes problematic if you're rejecting purgatory.
0: Did all of the fathers of the church agree on the canon?
1: they agreed obviously on the uh, on the new testament canon we find that in those 4th century synods that i mentioned before they're coming together and they're lining up on the documents of the of the new testament on the old testament they didn't have the same urgency to make the list in their mm-hmm. time but we do find them citing the deuterocanonical books as authorities we do have the problem of saint jerome Okay, Mm -hmm. because St. Jerome could not find Hebrew originals of the Deuterocanonicals. And so he was a little reluctant to accept them as authorities of equal value with the rest of the Old Testament. Pope Damasus told him, translate them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And Jerome did the right thing. He was obedient to the pope and he translated them anyway. And so they're there in Jerome's translation of the scriptures. Even though Jerome himself had scruples about this, he deferred to the authority of the Pope because he knew that if there were any authority on earth to define the canon, to say that that these books are canonical, it would reside with the successor of St. Peter. And that's where St. Jerome was going to put his money. So even though Jerome is the only person in the, the time of the Fathers who seems to be holding back from these books. In the end, he deferred to the to the Holy Father and his authority in this matter. So when people invoke Jerome as a witness against the Catholic canon of the Old Testament, they're really barking up the wrong tree because if they're going to follow St. Jerome's example, they better follow him and his deference to the papacy as well.
0: That's an important aspect when we look at the teachings of the fathers of the church. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they defer to one another, especially in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of those who have been declared saints. Yeah. And e- even those who argued amongst themselves, they would ultimately defer to the gathering and the work of the Holy Spirit within the group of that
1: apostolic tradition. That's right. The, they didn't see the Bible as this disembodied book. Mm-hmm. The Bible was the church's book, and it was alive when it was proclaimed within the church, within the church, and within the church's tradition. The tradition itself is an interpretation of the scripture, all right. And the tradition itself makes sense only in the context of scripture, but it's it's all part of the same package. And the mm-hmm. fathers knew that they uh, they knew that the um, the Bible could only live there. In the church, and once once you separated yourself from the church, the Bible would cease to make sense. It would become a riot of interpretations, which is what has happened in modern times.
0: You speak of the riot of interpretations, and it goes back to that original question that so many uh, Catholics, so many Christians, have what of the importance of the translations and as the good son of the fathers mm-hmm. what would they say mike aquilina to all of the different translations and how do we defer to what even within the church there is in europe the jerusalem bible mm-hmm. that is used in america the new american bible and yet among scholarly theologians it's the revised standard version what is the Catholic to read?
1: <laughs> well, I think, I think the fathers would have a lot of sympathy with our frustration. And they would say that the, the translation is not an easy task. Jerome knew that because Jerome translated the scriptures from the Greek. And then once he got his hands on the Hebrew and he learned Hebrew himself, he went back and did it again. So he would acknowledge that translation is not a simple task. And every translation, as the saying goes, is an act of treachery. The, you know, the, the, the line in Italian is that a, a translator is a traitor. Mm-hmm. And, and Jerome would probably recognize that to be true. Anytime you translate a text, you lose something. You lose something of the nuance of the original language. So many of the fathers tried to learn the original languages when they could. Origen did. Jerome did. They sought out Hebrew tutors. And they tried to do special editions of the Bible. In Origen's case, it was a big critical edition of the Bible with six columns, so that six different versions of the Bible could be compared side by side.
0: You can find those today, too.
1: Yeah, and yeah. and you know, the Fathers had this great desire, and I think they would appreciate the technology that we have at our disposal, and they'd say, you know, you're pretty lucky to have it. Mm. So
0: not to get too caught up in the minutiae, Trust the ones that have that authority, that stamp that say you will not be led into error by this particular translation and go from
1: that. I, I think so. I, I think that's what it's all about. And that's what we find in the Fathers, in the time of the Fathers. Again, the, church, the, the Bible is the church's book. It's alive in the church. And it becomes a dead letter apart from the church. But the church has the authority. The church has the authority to say this is a translation you can trust and to withhold its stamp of approval from translations it's not entirely comfortable with. Mm. So I think that it's always best to go with um, go with translations that have been approved by the church and uh, have been produced by the faithful children of the church.
0: Mm. I'm having the image in my heart of that great Old Testament prophet Ezekiel who had to consume the scriptures. Ultimately, that's what we're being called to do, isn't it?
1: Well, that's it. Um, uh, You know, it's great if we can do it the way the fathers did and the way St. Monica did and to try to get to Mass as often as we can and receive the scriptures that way. I think Bible study is great Mm -hmm. and we all should be doing it. But really, the ideal place to receive the scriptures is in the place they were written for. The scriptures were written to be read within the church's ritual life, within the church's sacramental life, within the church's church's liturgical life. And if we can do that, if we can get to Mass every day and receive the scriptures that way, that's the ideal way. You know, this, what a lot of non-Catholics don't appreciate is the fact that when a catholic goes to mass on weekdays you're getting three bible readings mm-hmm. you know one old testament usually and then a psalm and then a new testament reading on sundays you get four so you're absorbing so much of the scriptures and you're not just you're not just listening to them what what are you doing? You're 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 praying them. You're singing the psalm. It's becoming part of you. You're taking it on as your own your own prayer to God. This ancient prayer of of Israel and then this it's a prayer of Christ and finally it's our prayer. It was a prayer of the fathers before us. When we live the liturgical life of the church, we're really living the scriptures in the way the scriptures were intended to be lived, the way God intended the scriptures to be lived, the way the way he inspired them to be lived, the way the, impo- the apostles wrote them to be lived. We're doing it at the beating heart of the church, really.
0: Mm, beautifully said. Thank you, Mike Aquilina.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Chris.
0: You've been listening to The Roots of the Faith. From the church fathers to you, with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com. And join us next time for Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to you, with Mike Aquilina.